Welcome to this week's episode of our Thirsty Podcast. I am Pastor Michael Zarling. And I'm Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer. And we are here in the pit of despair at Water of Life Lutheran Church. It's the pit of despair because it's very quiet here again. Everything's been canceled. Our Bible study this morning was canceled. School is canceled for Wisconsin Lutheran School and Shoreland Lutheran High School. While everyone else is sleeping in, Nathan and I are here working diligently. One of the things I'm discovering about living in Racine is that while other places will get six to seven inches of snow, we seem to get two inches of slush. Yes. Yeah, because I was here early this morning and I was really excited to go out and use my fat bike in the snow. And then Nathan came in and said, it's raining too. So there's slush underneath the snow. Like our parking lot right now has an inch of slush. Yeah. It is a weird thing. Uh, my wife, Shelly, and I have been talking about this. It's a weird thing where uh, it's warmer by the lake, <clears throat> and so we may not get as much snow as other places. And I know she told you this story the other day that several years ago, uh, someone in our grade school had children at Shoreland Lutheran High School in summers near Kenosha, which is about 12, 14 uh, minutes away from Racine, and the parent had called the principal and complained that he hadn't canceled school because we had 20 inches of snow in Racine and it was still coming down. And the principal told him, we don't have any snow out here, just all that lake effect snow. Yeah, I have not experienced that yet. I had a friend who lived over on the east side of Lake Michigan for a while, and his wife commented that fairly often they wouldn't have snow even in the forecast and they'd wake up to eight inches. Yeah. And yet, so this is the second day this week that school was canceled. We had school canceled on Wednesday, and then I put on Facebook, this is the only snowstorm I remember where we canceled school and the snowstorm took away the snow. Because in Racine, it was warmer by the lake, and so it rained instead of snowed, and so it took all the existing snow away. And yet, school was canceled. Which we should mention is because we have to do whatever Racine Unified School District does. Yeah. We're, we don't have any say in the matter whatsoever because no. we depend on them for busing. Yeah. Our, our grade school could have school, but then we wouldn't get any busing. Exactly. So we have to do, like you said, whatever Racine Unified wants to do. And Shoreland Lutheran High School, they're, they are in a difficult position because they have kids coming from an hour away, south, northwest, not an hour east because that would be in the middle of Lake Michigan. But they, they're coming from a long distance, and so the weather in that huge radius can be very different. So today, in the middle of the snowstorm, uh, we're going to be studying the Scripture readings, the Old Testament and Gospel lessons for the second Sunday after the Epiphany. The theme is the kindness in his calling. Uh, I want to touch on the prayer of the day first. Uh, this is the ancient prayer. Almighty God, you gave your one and only Son to be the light of the world. Grant that your people, illumined by your word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and believed to the ends of the earth through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns one God now and forever. Amen. And they're just picking up on that epiphany theme of 
the light to the world. The season of Epiphany is all about Jesus revealing himself in his words and in his deeds. And that light comes to us, as the prayer says, illumined by your word and sacraments. Uh, We'll touch on that in each of the readings as we hear Samuel say to the Lord, Speak, O Lord, your servant is listening. So he's coming to him in the word. And then as uh, Nathaniel in the gospel, uh, that he knows that uh, he knows the Old Testament scriptures. And then when Jesus reads his mind and then also sees where he's from, sitting under the fig tree using his omniscience, Uh, he's amazed by that and Jesus says well you're going to see greater things than that and we do too we see greater things than that in the very humble means of God's word his sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper so so Nathan you want to read the first lesson from 1 Samuel 3 yes Uh, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the word of the Lord was rare in those days prophetic vision was not common now it, ha- now it happened that Eli's eyes had begun to grow dim so that he could not see. Once when Eli was lying down in his place and God's lamp had not gone out, Samuel was lying down in the Lord's temple where God's ark was. The Lord called Samuel and Samuel said, I am here. He ran to Eli and said, I am here since you called me. Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. Then the Lord called once more Samuel. So Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, I am here since you called me. He answered, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel had not yet experienced the Lord's presence. That is, the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel for the third time. So he got up and went to Eli and said, I am here since you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the young man. So Eli said to Samuel, go lie down and if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and once again lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there and called as he had the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. So to begin with, Nathan, if you want to tell our listeners, who is Samuel? So Samuel is a young man. Uh, His mother was Hannah, and in the beginning of the book of Samuel, we learn that she was barren. She was not able to have children, and she used to go with her husband every year to the temple and would pray to be given a son uh, because her husband had another wife who had children, and that woman would make Hannah's life miserable uh, and mock her for not being able to have children. Uh, And so Hannah would go and pray every year. And she prayed that if God would give her a son, she would dedicate him to his service. And so God blessed Hannah with the child. And so when he was old enough, she took him and sent him to, at that time, not the tabernacle, but the temple, or sorry, not the temple, but the tabernacle uh, to minister in the Lord's house. Right. So with that, just want to touch base on Hannah giving her son really to the Lord's ministry. So what I was thinking about with this is we can talk about this for a few moments. You know, Nathan, how did you, the first time, the first time, how did you know that you wanted to be a pastor? Was there someone that touched base with you? So while you're thinking of that, I can tell this story that for, for whatever reason, 
early on when I was a little boy, I was, I always wanted to be a pastor. I was pretending, practicing being a pastor, reading the Bible out loud to my family and so forth. And then when I was in high school, when I was going to go to high school, my mom took me to Kettle Moraine Lutheran High School, and I sat down with Pastor Ron Melberg, who would have been my advisor, and I remember him saying to my mom, and I'm sitting there, you know, Michael's a very smart young boy. I said, yes, I am. Well, in my head, I said that. And then he said, he could be a doctor. Really? Just in your head? Just in my head. I was pretty (laughs) shy and nerdy back then. Now I'm just nerdy. And... Uh, he said, and you know, Michael could be a doctor or a lawyer. And I was thinking, yes, I could. And then he said, and to be a doctor or a lawyer, you want to have Latin classes. So I got signed up for Latin classes, not realizing that the Latin track was really the pastor track. So after taking four years of Latin, two years of German, not as much science and so forth well the the natural place to go to then was northwestern college to become a pastor and so that's kind of how i was introduced into becoming a pastor even though i am not from a called worker family even with the name zarling i'm not related to all any of the other zarlings in our church body so how about you so my father was a pastor well actually still is a pastor he attempted to retire and uh, has now been serving a vacancy for a year at this point now. Um, But he had a rather unique ministry. He was only in the parish for about three years and then took a call in 1983 to be the camp director at Camp Phillip in Watoma, Wisconsin. So that's where I grew up. Um, I don't really remember what I wanted to do in grade school. I know going into high school, um, I was very heavily influenced by the novel Jurassic Park, and wanted to go into something in the genetics field because I thought that was very interesting. Um, So I was kind of looking into that as a possible career path. And then my wrestling coach at Winnebago was Pastor Bradley Wright, um, and he really kind of mentored me. I had a number of other classmates that really kind of encouraged me to study to be a pastor. And so junior year... I made the decision that that was what I was going to do, um, along with someone else you know, um, Pastor Brian Schmidt, also kind of decided at that point. So we were two seniors in the sophomore Latin class because we had to get our required Latin in before we went to MLC. Um, And so then I went to Martin Luther College, kind of struggled all four years. Uh, The languages and I really did not like each other that much, and so I... I kind of really struggled going through MLC, almost left a couple times to pursue other things, uh, but decided to stick it out. Uh, Went to the seminary for a year and a half and then decided that wasn't for me and was actually going to go back to MLC uh, to get my secondary education degree and teach high school history. And at that time, my father said, I need someone uh, to help with food service at the camp. Uh, Would you be willing to do that? And I said, I'll give you three years. That turned into 15. (laughs) Uh, And in the meantime there, I got an associate's degree in culinary arts. I was our facilities manager there for 15 years, uh, but always felt like something was was missing in that vocation for me. There are plenty of vocations that 
um, I shouldn't say plenty, all vocations that people have are fulfilling God's purposes for their lives. But for me, it felt like that just wasn't, I was missing something. So I had started staff ministry classes at Martin Luther College, um, and it really kind of hit me that the thing I wanted to do the most was preach and share God's word. And to do that, you need to be a pastor. And so I made the decision to go back to seminary. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing how the Lord works, and he works through other people oftentimes to get us into the ministry, like Hannah, God using Hannah to get Samuel into the ministry. And that's something I'm very cognizant of. We're blessed right now with a lot of teenagers, and the majority of them are very active. And, and I, I talk about this a lot with our people, that for a very long time we did not send anyone from our congregation on to MLC to become teachers and no one to become pastors. And now God is blessing us. We had one graduate this last year from MLC, another one who is a sophomore at MLC. We have two young men at Shoreland that want to become pastors and maybe six, could be more, that want to become teachers. So I'm trying to do whatever I can to... uh, keep encouraging them to be like Pastor Melberg was for me. And that's, so, you know, last week I took our two young men, AJ and Everett, out to visit shut-ins with me. They really enjoyed that. We talked about public ministry while I took them out to eat. And then we want to do something with our high schoolers that want to be teachers. And we might do something where we get four of our teachers from grade school and high school together and have the have each of the teachers talk to the teens about ministry, have the teens ask questions. And one of the teachers, because he's smart, he said, and we need to have food there. So we'll feed them and then really encourage them for the ministry. And it's something I encourage all of our listeners to find those young people in your family, in your congregation. Just keep encouraging them. Because we had a young man that I an eighth grader that I asked to go on these visits with me, and he said yes. Then the next day he told me in school, he goes, Pastor, I, I don't want to be a pastor. I'm not going to go. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Goes, you're not you're not hurt? I said, well, no. I mean, there's a, there's a knife in my back, but we can take that. No, I didn't say that. I said, it's, it's fine if you don't want to be a pastor. You can be a great lay leader. We need those people too. Uh, but encourage people for the ministry. And, and it, does, it does take some of us longer than others. <laughs> there you go. And, and then with that, keep encouraging your pastors and teachers now because there are those days where you felt while you're at seminary that maybe you couldn't do this. There are times that sometimes I feel maybe I can't do this. And then the Lord blesses me with something in my ministry that I come home and I go to, to, go to my wife or I say to you, oh, Maybe maybe I can do this. Maybe I am good at this. And, and not in a proud way, but in a humble way to say, wow, God gave me the right words and gave me the right abilities to do this thing or that thing. Uh, getting back into the text. Uh, so the word of the Lord was rare in those days, it says in verse 1. Prophetic vision was not common. What it's saying there is they had God's word. They had the first five books of the Bible. Uh, from from Moses. But what it's saying there by inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that 
God was not speaking through his prophets directly, you know, him talking to them like we see him doing now to Samuel and then throughout Samuel and to the prophets, uh, whispering in their ears, giving them the words to say. So Samuel takes place in the context. Samuel really is kind of the last judge. Uh, so if you think of the book of Judges and how God would come periodically uh, to a leader like Gideon or Samson and reveal to him to them his will to relieve the Israelites from whatever enemy, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, whoever was oppressing them. Samuel is kind of the end of that era, and he ushers in the era of the kings and then the priests and then the more formal prophets that we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Um, but the book of Judges is kind of, we see the decline of godliness uh, within the Israelite society with the high point with Joshua and the conquest of the land. And now many of the people have lost the true faith and are worshiping false gods. And we see some examples of even, even among those who were still the remnant of believers, um, those serving in the tabernacle of the Lord, even there, some of God's word had also been lost. And, and so... Samuel comes to Eli because he figures that Eli is the one calling him. It makes sense that Eli is calling him. And uh, Eli says, well, I didn't call you. Go, go lie down. And their thinking is oftentimes, like in this story, we are looking for God, looking for his voice in the wrong places. I don't know. Can you think of examples of that, Nathan, of looking for God for inspiration and so forth from the wrong places. So one that comes to mind is on Wednesdays and Fridays, uh, I get up early, earlier than Nathan does because I'm an early, early, pers- early morning person. He's shaking his head no because he's not. Those of us who identify more with, with in the fantasy world with dwarves, are not fans of the sun. We prefer the dark and the underground. So no, morning morning is not a good time of day. Well, you should also love living in uh, Wisconsin this time of the year because we have not seen the sun in a very long time. Although and then my wife, I think, who might be a part-time meteorologist said, yeah, but when, it's, uh, when the sun's out, that's when it gets colder. Okay, well, all right. You, you have that, but I'd like to see the sun once in a while. But... Uh, Wednesday morning when I was in line to give plasma, I heard a guy behind me saying to one of the other workers there, well, you know, about shoveling snow. Well, I go and I shovel the snow for my neighbors because I believe in karma, that if you do good, good will come back to you. And I'm just rolling my eyes. And then the lady that's taking my pulse and everything in front of me, she says, well, you know, so far we've had good weather, knock on wood. And I rolled my eyes again. And then I was visiting some shut-ins this week and walking by the one, one door of, uh, of someone's house uh, or apartment. It had something to do, and I can't remember the exact poem it was. I just remember it rhymed. And it said something about when you see a cardinal, that's when you, you know a, an angel is nearby. I said, oh, my God goodness. Those are all things of looking for inspiration, looking for signs from God where he is not giving signs. He's not talking to us in those things. I think of, have you read Jonathan Fisk's book, 
um, broken. Yeah, I did a Bible study and and a sermon series on that too. It's kind of a weird book. It is a weird book, but I think I think of the example he has in the beginning of talking about the kid who's struggling in life and just wants to know if God is there. And in that moment, the clouds part and he's hit with a beam of sunlight. He goes, oh, well, now I feel the presence of God. Well, what happens, though, when that beam of sunlight goes away? Yeah, because you live in southeastern Wisconsin in winter. And that's the thing. It's like that's not how God has promised uh, to talk to us. I think about, you know, Christians who, who, who dabble in using some of the New Age things, like, well, it's nature and God's in nature, so we can get symbols. No, that's not how God says he's going to reveal himself to us. Or um, I enjoy listening to the uh, Missouri Synod podcast, Issues, etc. And in the new year, there's always all of the predictions that come out from some of the mainstream uh, Pentecostal and evangelical churches where they they have gotten their their spirit casting or vision casting leader has gotten their revelation for God for the year and what is going to happen um, and then the pastor who does those those segments always has one in June or August that says, oh, let's look and see how those predictions turned out. Oh, absolutely everything they said was wrong. And if we use the test of a false prophet, they should be stoned because they're speaking in God's name and they're speaking untruth. But people want to look for that. They're not satisfied with God's revealed word. They want more. And yet everything we need for our salvation is found within God's word it's just I think too often people are thinking, well, yeah, I know I'm saved, but those aren't the pressing questions that I want answered in my life. I want to know why my wife has been diagnosed with cancer. I want to know why my son was killed 15 years ago in a car crash. I want those answers. And instead, God is saying, no, what the answer you need is about your salvation, which is done through Christ. Right. And I had a conversation recently with someone whose wife had died tragically and suddenly and then he, he asked me, we were on the phone, well, you know, this thing happened, whatever it was, and do you think that that was from my wife? I you know I smell, I think he said something about, I smelled the smell, and that was the smell that reminded me of her. You think that she sent it to me? And those are the kind of situations that, in conversations, where you have to be very careful. So I didn't, I just kind of nod in my head, you know, he couldn't see that because we were on the phone, but changing the subject to go and talk about Jesus and then later on because they didn't want to turn him off by saying no that's all wrong like we're talking about here just turn the conversation to Jesus and then getting into those things as I built up a relationship because with that gentleman that was the only second conversation I'd, I'd ever had with him. Well, in situations like that, there is too, you know, some people work through their grief in different ways. And you're right, there's there's a time and a place um, to teach and to educate someone like that, um, but also not to destroy, you know, as they're working through the grieving process. And then, like you said, something about nature. I've heard this from our hunters in our congregation over the years too. Well, I like... You know, it's like worship out in nature because I'm out with God. And I gently correct them. Now, because of our online services, I get texts from, from guys. One in particular, he had texted a few weeks a few weeks ago during probably bow hunting season. And he said it was really cool to see baptisms from the tree stand. 
because we had baptized the one family in the beginning of November on All Saints Day. And then he, this gentleman had watched the service online. Probably, kind of, he probably had a earbud in so he didn't scare the deer away with the music and the speaking from the worship service. Uh, but those kind of things. Yeah, God is in nature, but he's not speaking to us in nature. And that's the last part of this text where Samuel says to the Lord, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Uh, I just had this Bible study last week with some brand new, uh, uh, brand new parents at Wisconsin Lutheran School. Uh, and they're new this year. They want to be, become Lutherans. And so I was over there for probably three hours for two, two lessons because they had so many questions. And one of the things we talked about was Lutheran worship because the husband had grown up Lutheran, but the wife knew nothing about it at all. And so I talked about standing and sitting, about the way the pastor turned and so forth, and just saying, imagine Lutheran worship as we're having a conversation with God. I said that when we're standing, it's usually because we're talking to God. That we're talking to him in the beginning of the worship service, giving him our sins. Uh, we're then, after we've received the words of abs- absolution, we're talking to God in the Kyrie, Lord have mercy. Then giving him praise in the Gloria, the glory to God in the highest, and then the prayer of the day. And then the conversation switches where we're sitting down because God's talking to us. And that's, this is the longest part of the service. God's talking to us in the Old Testament lesson, the Psalm, the Epistle lesson, the Gospel lesson, at Water of Life, the children's devotion, and then the sermon. We talk to God again in the prayer of the, prayer of the church. It's changed now. We sit for that just because it's a longer prayer. But we stand again when we have the preface as we're preparing for the Lord's Supper, there is the Eucharistic prayers, the Lord's Supper prayers, and the Lord's Prayer. And just to think of that, of a conversation, God talks, we talk, and so forth. And then even think of the way that the pastor, when he is carrying out this conversation, or he is that mediator, that intercessor, that when he is facing the altar, the symbol of God's presence, then he is taking our words to the Lord, and then when he faces the congregation, now he is giving God's words to the people. Anything you want to talk about with the words, listening to the word? No, I just know I have to sometimes get better at which way I'm I'm facing because I don't always do it correctly, and then it clicks in my head when I'm like, oh, this is a prayer. I really should be facing the altar, but it's too late now. I'm not going to turn away, right. half, turn around but, halfway through. But the thing is, I don't know if there are people notice it, and that's why it's always good for our listeners, and I remind our members, you know, take your pastor's adult confirmation class with someone new. Uh, these are things that I review, and I always tell our new adult confirmands and our youth confirmands, I bet you most of the people in the church don't know this. So those are things that I try and mention several times during the year, too, uh, to our own members just to remind them why we do things. Because so much of what we do in Lutheran worship is symbolic, but if we don't know why we do the things, the symbolism have lost their meaning. That's right. Yeah. And I and one of the things, too, like personally what I was going to say, too, is my bishop had taught me, if you mess up, just commit to it. <laughs> <laughs> like 
don't 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 waffle just if you messed up you own it just keep going like like if you accidentally say a swear word in german during your sermon <laughs> i do have a tendency to stumble over my words and yes sometimes things come out <laughs> it's very like when you're preaching and you're trying not to lose your train of thought but then in the back of your head you're like what did i just yeah, say yeah and then nobody's reacting negatively so we're okay <laughs> So I don't know if your wife and children do this, but my wife and child will will be over there in, in the left-hand side of my periphery vision, and then they'll be giggling about something. I don't look at my children when I preach because yeah. they, they think it's funny. I've I've been shaving my head for about five years now, and they still think it's funny that I'm bald and the way the light reflects off my head, so they're usually giggling about that. Or my son's asleep and snoring, and my daughter's nudging him, and then they're laughing about that. Uh, you can call him out from the pulpit. I know of a previous pastor, because I've heard stories. A previous pastor at Epiphany did that with his own kids. Our previous pastor in Watoma did that with our children. All right. There you go. So uh, the last thing is speak, for your servant is listening. There, I'm going to read this to you. Nathan suggested he was going to sing it for you. But then we would have copyright issues, so I'll just uh, speak the words of hymn 633, Speak, O Lord. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Verse 2, teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail, let their truth prevail over unbelief. Verse 3, speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And by grace will stand on your promises, and by faith will walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, tell your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. All right, should we move on to the gospel lesson? Uh, there was just one, okay. other, one other detail I didn't get a chance to point out um, that I've always found interesting in this account, kind of talking about how far even the priests, uh, the descendants of Aaron, had slid in their duties. Uh, in, in, verse, in verse 3, it says, And the God's lamp had not yet gone out. And it says that just kind of as a, this was a normal occurrence, that, you know, the, la- the lamp in the tabernacle would go out every night. Well, in the regulations for the tabernacle, God specifically states that that light is never to go out, is to be kept perpetually burning and at this point in Israel's history that had been forgotten and it was just a normal occurrence that even within the tabernacle they were blatantly breaking God's law Mm. very good then the gospel and I'll be preaching on this this Sunday from John 1 verses 43 to 51 the next day Jesus wanted to leave for Galilee he found Philip and said to him follow me Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, 
and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Come and see, Philip told him. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Truly, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus replied, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Then he added, Amen, amen, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Nathan, John begins this section. It says the next day. So what happened in the previous days? Um, well, in the previous days, sorry, I just turned to Matthew and got distracted. Uh, in the previous days, John had been, or Jesus had been baptized by John. But now I'm glad I turned to Matthew because something I had forgotten about is in between the baptism and Jesus calling the first disciples that John doesn't cover is the 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. Um, so it seems that Jesus was in the wilderness for a while. Yeah, so he, he's yeah, in the wilderness. I'm getting, yeah. I'm getting confused because... Yeah, Matthew, because we had been talking about this a little bit, where, where Jesus was. Right, so one of the questions I had for Nathan before we started recording, because I told him I was going to be nice to him and not try and stump him. Yeah, and now I'm stumped. <laughs> and the question I had, because like I told Nathan before, I'm trying to, in my preaching style now, I'm trying to tell more stories. And the story I want to tell is adding some some background uh, with Nathan or Nathaniel and Philip, and just where is this taking place? Because John, it seems like this could be taking place down in the southern part of Judea, because that's where John the Baptist was was baptizing and preaching. That's where Jesus would have been baptized. And then, like you said, Nathan, he's in the desert, and yet. Uh, he's there for 40 days, and yet, you know, this text says that Philip is from Bethsaida, which is near Capernaum in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, along with his friends, Peter and Andrew, yeah, Peter and Andrew, James and John. So I was just trying to figure out, well, where is this taking place? Is it taking place in the south, where John is? Is it taking place more in the north, where all of these disciples are coming from? Because you read... One of the other Gospels about the calling of Peter and Andrew, James and John, which takes place along the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, it, it almost, I, I'm, I'd be interested at some point maybe to read more about this um, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to have some more time in there. And so it'd be interesting, someone who's done more work on this, to see if Jesus called Philip and Andrew and then went into the wilderness, or if this, because the other Gospels, it almost seems like the baptism happened, and Jesus immediately went into the wilderness for 40 days, and then left the wilderness and went up into Galilee and called Peter and Andrew. Um, but John's account makes it sound like he was baptized, and the next day he called 
Philip and Nathan or or sorry, Andrew yeah. Philip and Nathaniel. Philip and Nathaniel. Yeah. And so so the key is we're we're not sure. So you can go ask your huh. pastors and and yeah. try and stump, stump them. them. Yeah. You can you can even say, hey, these guys in the Thirsty podcast, they don't know what they're talking about. But that would be fair. Yeah. But it'd be interesting to see if they know where this is. Not to really stump them, but to say this is a this is a tricky one. And in the commentaries I was reading, they were talking more about the the words that we're going to be talking about next, and they weren't they didn't mention anything about the location. But uh, the key here, and you'll probably hear a lot of sermons about this, and rightfully so, is Jesus calls Philip to follow him, and what's the first thing Philip does? He goes and he finds his friend. And so you'll hear pastors talking about, you know, do that. And it's a good sanctified thing to do is when, because Jesus has called you to follow him through word and sacraments like the prayer of the day, now he wants you to go out and tell your friends. And then he goes and he finds his friend Nathaniel, who is sitting under a fig tree, and he's excited. We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And the way I'll talk about this in my sermon is trying to get into the head of Nathaniel, one whom Jesus says there is no deceit. He's someone that knows the scriptures. And he's probably thinking in his head, all right, the Old Testament does not mention Nazareth. When it, in relation to the Messiah, it mentions Bethlehem. It mentions he's going to be a, the son of David ruling on the throne in Jerusalem, but it doesn't mention Nazareth. So he asks, can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, you know, backwater town. So there, Nathan, when you got the call, the assignment from the seminary to Racine, did anyone say to you, Racine, can anything good come from Racine? No, but we we would often use this verse when talking about where people had grown up. Yeah. Like for me, Watoma. Can anything good come from Watoma? Um, I'm sure you had that too. It's something. It's one of the one of the jokes we like to to make with each other. Uh, no, and I always like we had been encouraged. Um, Walther writes about how wherever you're assigned. Uh, as a pastor, to consider that the most beautiful place that you've ever been put, that that is where you are to make your ministry. Um, and we're really encouraged to think that way. Um, but as you and I both know, there are there are certain areas within Wells that, that people make yeah. comments about, um, often places where people have grown up and did not have fond memories, it seems, it seems like. And yes, sometimes jokes will be made if people get calls to one place or another, people go, oh, Really? That's where you're going? Well, and I mentioned Racine this way because... We have Kringle. <laughs> that's what people would have said to us 20 years ago when I was holding the call around this time to come and be the pastor at Epiphany was, uh, you don't want to move to Racine. There's the violence in Racine. And where is the church? Which one is it? Is it the one downtown? Is it the other one? And then when we were calling to be my for pastors to be my associate at Water of Life, that's what I told all the guys that we called is you're going to have people saying, oh, can anything good come from Racine? They're going to give you all of these bad things and so forth. And then I encouraged them to say, 
you know, you know, there are some good things about Racine and Mount Pleasant that goes around Racine. There's some bad things and so forth. But like you said, we have Kringle, real Kringle, not like Racine Kringle. That's different than O and H Kringle. We have, and, and I would always try and entice them to and say, you know, as a called worker, I said this yesterday in my conversation with someone that we had called to be our principal. I said, you get, as called workers, you get preferential treatment to come to the Zarling Jedi Temple for the hot tub. And you can also use uh, our axe throwing target. And if you're really good, you can do the axe throwing from the hot tub <laughs> while you're eating Kringle. Maybe maybe it helped too that we we had been living in the the greater Milwaukee area, so you know the crime thing. We were coming to <laughs> an area with less crime and better drivers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the key is, uh, and I always thought of this text of Nazareth. Can anything good come from this little backwater town? But in studying this more in depth this time, understanding no, it yeah, it's a backwater town. But because he knows the scriptures, he knows that nothing is mentioned in the Old Testament about Nazareth in connection with the Messiah. We were kind of talking about this a little bit with, with Jesus in one of the next phrase where he says, Truly, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. It's unfortunate that we don't have tone mm-hmm. in scripture to know how some of these things were said. And that's kind of where we have to interpret, like with this Nazareth, can anything good come from there, was that Nathaniel saying it in the sense of the Old Testament, or was there a snarky tone yeah. to that? It, we don't know. And well, you said that in connection with in whom there is no deceit, yes. which is now trying, you know, it's in my head. How do I write this? Do I write it the way I've always taken it that Jesus is, you know, speaking up front, you know, no deceit, he knows the scriptures, or like you said to me yesterday, you know, is he being sarcastic? You know, oh, here's one that in whom there is no deceit, because Jesus, like God, like the prophets, is very good with divine sarcasm. And and I mean it in the sense of kind of was Jesus in that phrase criticizing the intense skepticism that Nathaniel was showing mm, yeah. um to Philip's confession that we have found I have found the Christ and and his doubt and skepticism, and was Jesus commenting on that? Yeah, and that skepticism, that's what I'm going to be touching on in my sermon for Sunday, because we can all be like that. I'm going to give all kinds of situations of like young parents with their child in the ER at Children's Hospital, or it's parents with their teenage daughter as she's argued with them and now is slam the door and she's in her room because her parents don't understand her, the parents don't understand their daughter, or the married couple that have fought again and now they're sleeping back to back. Uh, is it the, the parents that are elderly and you know they're going through all of their health problems or their children that are dealing with their parents with all the health problems or the aged saint in hospice care just waiting to die? And then there's so many other situations that we find ourselves in, and we can be skeptical and say, is there anything good with this God? Where is God? And that's where we hear the words of Philip. Come and see. And so the suggestion for you, our listeners, is that when you have these questions, like Philip did, and you may not 
know how to answer them. Or you may have answers, but they're going to take you away from Scripture and you can answer them. Uh, just go, come and see. Come, come, to the, come to Scripture. Let's do a Bible study together. Come to church with me. Come and meet my pastor. Come and see. I, I've always been one. I know for a long time there were there were pastors within the synod that were very against apologetics, mm-hmm. that the gospel is the only thing that creates faith. And I'm not one of those. I think there is definitely a time and a place for apologetics that we we need to be able to at times give a rational defense for um, the beliefs that we have. We're not going to convert anyone that that way, but we do need to be able to answer questions well, people yes. have. So they, they're building up these walls, yeah. and the apologetics is knocking down the walls. The walls. Yep. But at the end, we're not going to convince them of the truth, and that's where this is like, yeah, that's fine. Come and see. Come yeah. see. I was trying to—I'm doing chapel at Shoreland next week, and I was trying to think of an example from my own life where I had told somebody something that I had seen, and they're just like, no, that can happen. And I— Come see for your—and I could not think of one. Oh. So I just completely changed what my introduction was going to be because okay. I'm like, well, this is too vague to be a good introduction because yeah. I couldn't think of anything. Yeah, and the story that comes to mind with this is early on in my ministry here in Racine, I was invited to come to the house of Red, and Red was not a member. Uh, he was the husband of one of our elderly members, the stepdad of one of our members, and his family did not know if Red was Christian, and he was dying of cancer in the house. And so I was called in to, to have a conversation with Red. And Red, who never met me, he said, Pastor, I don't like it that I can't come to your church and take communion. And thankfully, by that time, I'd been in the ministry for about a decade, so I was smarter. And I said, Red, it doesn't matter. You can't get up and out of the house to come to church to even take communion. So let's just talk about Jesus. And he said, oh, okay. <laughs> and then we talked about Jesus. But he wanted to put up that wall. And in my younger years, I might have taken the bait and then tried to knock down the wall. Instead, I just moved around the wall and said, let's just talk about Jesus. And, and that was okay. Come and see. Uh I had a similar situation last year, almost completely a year ago. We were down canvassing in Austin for a possible mission start in one of the Austin suburbs. And I was out with one of the younger guys from the seminary, and we ran into a uh, a YouTube minister slash bodybuilder um, who had one of those like devotional weightlifting YouTube channels, which I discovered are a thing. Um, but we we were talking with this guy and we were talking about about sin and we were talking about how everyone is born and you know doing basic law gospel and the guy said I'm going to stop you right there cuz I I don't believe that I'm a sinner I don't identify as a sinner I I don't I've been I've been born again and now I don't sin and the younger guy I was with with like jumped right at that and I and I told him later I said listen in a situation like that you're not going to win that argument mm-hmm. don't have that argument turn it back and say, okay, well, let's talk about what Jesus has done for sinners. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So for our listeners, if you remember uh, Joyce Meyer, I know she used to be a very prominent TV evangelist uh, in her history. She, I think she had grown up Missouri, St. Lutheran, and then gave up that faith. 
Uh, and uh, she said later on in life, too, that she had been sanctified enough that she wasn't a sinner anymore. Uh, but thinking of that with an come and see, Nathan and I were working on the congregational statistics for our congregation and just seeing how the Lord has blessed our congregation this past year, especially since Nathan got here. And I had told this to all the pastors that we called, 16 guys. If you come, God will bless this ministry. It's ready to take off. And now it's happened, and I seem like a prophet, even though I was just hoping that it would happen. But with the kind of numbers that we've seen, just going off the top of my head, I think eight youth confirmands, eight adult confirmands, uh, two adult baptisms, eight child baptisms. Uh, we've got seven people, Lord willing, that will be confirmed in three weeks, and one of those being a high school student from China that will be baptized as well as confirmed. And then people ask me, well, where are these people coming from? What are you doing? I'm not doing anything. There's no one thing that we're doing, just being aggressive and sharing the gospel. But people are coming, and when I have the conversations with them, somewhere along the line, whether it's a, a girlfriend or a fiancé, whether it is a, a friend, someone has said, like Philip, just come and see. And whatever is going on in their life, they took that invitation. Or it's knowing there's something going on in their life, and the Holy Spirit is like in the Old Testament lesson, somewhere in their ears and in their heart whispering, uh, you're, he's talking. And they're opening up and say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And he's saying something like, get your butt in a church. So, so just come and see. And then at the end, Nat, Nathaniel does come and see. And Jesus, with his omniscience, says, well, I can see in your heart there's no deceit. And I saw you sitting under a fig tree. And going back to our discussion on where is this taking place in the north or the south, there's fig trees in both places, so that doesn't help much. Uh, but he says, I saw you under the fig tree, but you're going to see greater things than that. So what are some greater things that Nathaniel's going to see from Jesus being his disciple for three, for three years? I think of just the miracles that Nathaniel is going to see um, Jesus perform. The, the sermons he's going to hear the Lord teach the one-on-one conversations that he has with the son of god that aren't recorded for us in scripture that the disciples undoubtedly had and then of course the greatest thing he's going to see he's going to see christ crucified and all the signs and wonders that accompany the crucifixion on good friday and then the resurrection and seeing the resurrected lord being there in that locked room seeing the nail prints and the spear wound in christ's side seeing the resurrection being there on pentecost being anointed with the holy spirit and fire and then going out into the world and spreading that message and then ultimately both of these men will be martyred for the faith yeah those greater things that they're going to see like you said the miracles and then for us by God's grace, through the eyes of faith, we've seen those miracles. And then we see the miracles of a little child at the baptismal font, ripped out of Satan's arms and placed into God's arms through water and word. When we see these saints, whether they're young, 
at 13 years old, just newly confirmed, or uh, elderly in, in the hospital, the hospital, in their nursing home, in the hospice home, receiving the sacrament with a little tear in their eyes. Uh, that sacrament that is forgiveness that they can taste. It is the body and blood of the very Son of God that is on their lips. Those are, those are greater things. This word of God that comes into our ears and then it uh, convicts us in our minds through, the, through God's law and it comforts us in our hearts of God's gospel. Those are greater things too. And then I think too, because we were talking about this last week with celebrating the baptism of our Lord, talking about symbolism again. At a Christian burial, the symbolism of having the Christ candle lit, uh, reminding everyone in the church that this is a baptized child of God, that though they are dead, they are now alive in Christ, and that baptism has sealed them to the promise of God, the promise that that body will be raised again in glory on the last day with the certainty of the resurrection that we have in Christ. So talking about burial reminds me, I've had a conversation, several conversations recently, one this week, Older members that have been at this congregation, Epiphany, for decades. And so they, they will say, Pastor, it's always going to be Epiphany to me. And I said, well, that's fine, but just understand that if I'm here when I do your burial, I'm going to have Water of Life swag draped over you, so you're going to be buried as a Water of Life member, even if you think of it as Epiphany. I can get away with that. And then the last thing, he says, Amen, Amen, I tell you. And notice how Jesus says Amen, you know, before he says something, we always use Amen at the end. But when he says Amen, Amen, truly, truly, I tell you, he's saying something really important. Uh, He says, You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What he's referring to there is when Jacob has lied to his father's face. He has deceived his brother Esau and taken his birthright, and now Esau is breathing out murderous threats on his brother. Jacob takes off, and he runs, and he's in the desert. He's in the wilderness, and he falls asleep. And you got to be pretty tired to use a pillow, or a, a rock as a pillow. And then God gives him a vision, and he sees heaven opened and angels ascending and descending on a stairway to heaven. Jesus is saying, that stairway in Jacob's dream, I'm that stairway. I'm the pathway to heaven. And there, what he does for us is he opens up heaven to us so that he takes our imperfect prayers and he perfects them before they reach the ear of the Heavenly Father, that he takes our tainted works that we think are so great, and he sanctifies them so now they are good so that our Heavenly Father pats us on the back and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. He opens up heaven to us because he is that mediator, that intercessor, so now we can now go to heaven even though we're destined to hell because Jesus is that stairway to heaven. Anything else you want to add to that, Nathan? No, other than I I do like at the end of this, um, 
Jesus uses that title, the Son of Man, which is one of his favorite ways for talking about himself. And that goes back to the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, which says the Son of Man is directly tied to God and the coming Messiah. And it's that title uh, later on when Jesus is on trial before the high priest, when he says, I am, when he says, talks about himself as the Son of Man, that's what the high priest tears his robes over because he he understands. And I think we sometimes lose that, not having the connection uh, to the Old Testament the way did, that Jesus is saying with that title, I am God. Yeah. Yeah. And notice, because, like you said, we'll often call Jesus the Son of God. He calls himself the Son of Man. Nathaniel calls him the Son of God, and Jesus isn't correcting him, I don't think. He's just adding to it and saying, I'm also the Son of Man. You know, going Which, back to those Old Testament and prophecies. That, and to Nathaniel, that would have clicked right yeah. away what he was saying. Yeah. All right, very good. Uh, so go to your church's Bible study and sermons, even if it's snowy out. Uh, you can you can make it. What what I what I like to do now? I'm preaching this Sunday, so I've got to drive between the two services. But I've done this in the past when it was just Epiphany. I would bike to church in the snow. And then I would post a picture of myself, say, I made it to church biking here in the snow. You can drive here and challenge people. I mean, we do have 15 extra minutes now between services. You could, you could bike. Yeah, I, I, could, <laughs> I could bike. Uh, all right, so we'll wrap it up there. This is Pastor Michael Zarling with Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer from the Pit of Despair in a Very Snowy Day. Uh, here at Water of Life, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. You are thirsty, my friends, so drink deeply from the water of life.